I think this may also explain why the book of Acts appears to end quite uh, abruptly. The, the book of Acts ends without any reference to Paul's appearance before Nero. Luke's last words in this book is that Paul spent two years in Rome under confinement, but preaching the gospel without any sort of hindrance. People have often thought it's strange that uh, Luke makes no reference to the trial. Well, I believe that's because this document was composed by Luke to help prepare Paul for that trial, so that when he wrote this book, the trial had not yet taken place. But the church, I believe, very quickly saw the value of these two books. Uh, Luke was a very meticulous historian, and it became uh, immediately a very uh, valuable set of documents to trace the expansion of Christianity from a tiny, obscure village in Palestine to the very heart of the Roman Empire. And everywhere that Paul goes in the book of Acts, we see him uh, challenging and affecting entire cultures and cities and provinces and continents for the gospel. I think we can learn from Paul's example by imitating him in action. We can learn to have the same sort of impact on our own society today. And that's why the book of Acts has an abiding significance for us as uh, God's people of the 20th century. So I'd like to look with you at Acts 28 this morning. And I believe what we see is we will trace through this account that uh, as so often occurs in the, both the Gospels and the book of Acts, we see three keys which surface in this chapter which will enable us as God's people to have the same sort of impact on our culture that Paul had on his. The first key to this sort of impact is revealed in the first ten verses of chapter 28. Remember, we ended uh, last week's uh, story with uh, Paul and his 275 shipmates uh, shipwrecked on the island of Malta, and Luke picks up his story there in verse 1. When they had been brought safely through, then we found out that the island was called Malta. And the natives showed us extraordinary kindness, for because of the rain that had set in and because of the cold, they kindled a fire and received us all. But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. And when the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, I've always thought it was a very graphic picture, the creature hanging from his hand, they began saying to one another, Undoubtedly this man is a murderer, and though he has been saved from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. However, he shook the creature off into the fire and suffered no harm. But they were expecting that he was about to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But after they had waited a long time and had seen nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and began to say that he was a god. Malta was a very strategically placed island, just about halfway between the northern coast of Africa and the southern coast of Italy, and so it became a very active uh, seaport for naval activity. Luke records that the natives there, he uses the word barbarian, if you'll notice in your margin, that's not used uh, derogatorily. Any Greek would use the term barbarian to refer to someone uh, for whom Greek was not a native dialect. The residents of Malta spoke a uh, Phoenician dialect as a first language. Greek was a second language for them, and so Luke uses the term that every Greek would use to refer to them, similar to our term foreigners. 
records their uh, unusual hospitality to this uh, shipwrecked uh, crew of people, indicates that the, uh, the residents of Malta there built a huge bonfire, probably right there on the beach, and helped to warm these uh, drenched uh, survivors of this uh, shipwreck. Rain was falling and it was cold, being, of course, at this point late October, so the um, fall chill had set in. And Paul, busy as always, was out gathering uh, uh, loose uh, driftwood for this fire. And as Paul placed this bundle of sticks that he'd collected on the bonfire that the Maltese had built there, the heat evidently awakened this poisonous viper, which had been laying dormant due to the cold. And the viper crawled out of this bundle of sticks and bit Paul right on the hand. You know, Paul lifted up his hand, and there was this viper hanging from his hand. And the residents of Malta had a theology to explain this sort of behavior. They knew a Greek story about a man who was a murderer and had been shipwrecked on the North African coast and likewise had been bitten by a viper, and he had died. And so they assumed that the same thing was true of Paul, that he was a murderer and should have probably died in this shipwreck but had been spared fortunately, but the Greek goddess Justice was not about to let let him go unpunished, and uh, they felt that this Greek goddess Justice was responsible then for this poisonous bite of this viper. Now, everyone else they'd ever seen bitten by a viper would swell up, break out in a, a high fever, and fall over dead. And they saw Paul simply shake off the viper into the fire, And then uh, Luke's account, I think, is very interesting. It says they sat around, they expected, they waited a long time expecting him to fall dead. And I can see the natives kind of gathering around the fire, peering at Paul as he sat there munching on some snacks, you know, just waiting for him to collapse. And he never did. And after they'd waited a long time all evening and they realized that this poisonous attack had had no effect on this man, they immediately changed their minds, Luke seems to add almost humorously, and began to regard Paul no longer as a murderer, but as a god in human form. Now Luke's account continues in verses 7 through 10. It says, In the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the leading man of the island named Publius, who welcomed us and entertained us courteously three days. And it came about that the father of Publius was lying in bed, afflicted with recurrent fever and dysentery, And Paul went in to see him, and after he had prayed, he laid his hands on him and healed him. And after this had happened, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases were coming and getting cured. And they also honored us with many marks of respect, and when we were setting sail, they supplied us with all that we needed. This phrase, leading man, in verse 7, is a a technical term to refer to this Publius as the leading Roman official on the island of Malta. He received Paul as an honored guest for three days, Luke tells us. Turns out that Publius's father had a severe case of dysentery. Any of uh, you that have been struck by this malady know that it's very painful, and he evidently, uh, this was also accompanied by a recurrent fever Luke uses the plural for the word fever here, suggesting that this, uh, these attacks of fever came and went, but uh, was a, uh, an illness that, this, uh, that Publius's father could not uh, rid himself of. Sounds a little bit like he had been struck with Maltese revenge here, but uh, 
At any rate, when Paul discovers from Publius that his father was laying sick, Paul went in to see him, laid his hands on him, prayed over him, and his father was healed instantly. And the word spread quickly throughout the island that a healer was in residence. And so many people from the island of Malta came to Paul to be treated and healed of their illnesses. They were received very well, Luke tells us, by their residents. And when they set sail for Rome, the residents of Malta supplied them with all of the goods that they had lost in their uh, violent shipwreck. Well, I think as we look back over these first ten verses, we see the first uh, key, I think, to the sort of impact that Paul was able to have on his society. And that is, there was a demonstration of the healing power of God in life. That's what arrested the attention of the residents of Malta, that here was a uh, man through whom the healing power of God was released in life. Now, when these physical healings take place in the Gospel and in the book of Acts, I believe these are intended by God to picture for us the sort of healing that God intends to do on a deeper level. Always the healing that God does in the spiritual dimension of life is far more significant than the healing that he does simply on the physical plane of life. And these physical healings are designed to reflect that and to visualize that for us. And so these physical healings, both in Paul's case and in Publius's father's case and the residents of the island in their case as well, are designed to reflect for us the sort of healing ministry that God intends to continue today in the, in the inner man. And this is what will begin to arrest the attention of the outside world when they see that, that the church is a sort of a hospital or a clinic in which people can be healed of their spiritual diseases and spiritual maladies. And when they see that people who are touched by the gospel become whole and well-adjusted and content people and begin to find uh, solutions for their problems of guilt and their problems of boredom and frustration and, and resentment and anger and lust and greed and covetousness, they will begin to sit up and take notice. Okay? But if there's no difference when we're affected by these things, the thing that struck these Maltese is the very things that struck other people dead had no effect on Paul and his company. When they see that the same things that uh, destroy people around us, uh, we're able to, to handle, we're able to stand with poise and calm and confidence in the midst of circumstances that would cause other people to fall apart and to become bitter and angry and resentful then they will begin to sit up and take notice. Because what the world is looking for is a power to do things that they have never been able to do before. To love instead of to hate. To feel uh, a joy instead of depression and gloom. To be uh, peaceful when others are anxious and uptight. And in the gospel, the healing power of the gospel, we have access to the resources of Jesus to be these sorts of people. I think one of the reasons we've had so little impact on our society is that the church, by and large, is focused on what I would call negative righteousness, that we have spent a good deal of our time compiling lists of things that people are to do or not to do. And the last thing the world needs is another list of do's and don'ts. Reminds me of a guy who went into his see his doctor, and he said to his doctor, Listen, doc, if I uh, give up uh, smoking and drinking and desserts, will I live to be 105? And the doctor says, uh, no, but it'll seem like it. Okay? You know? 
So the world, uh, you know, doesn't need another list of activities with their, which are off limits because what they're looking for is a source of power to do things they have wanted to do and never been able to do. And so the church ought to be known as a place which is, uh, uh, which is, a, which is like a hospital for the soul where people can come and be patched up and restored to emotional and psychological health and then uh, uh, sent forth as whole and complete people. And when this begins to happen, the world will begin to sit up and take notice. I think what happens too often is that the world sees that when, uh, if, when Christians are pushed hard enough, they will shriek and scream and holler just like everybody else. And so it seems to them that the gospel message we talk about is just uh, so many words. Because when push comes to shove, we will act just like the average non-Christian when the heat is on. I was uh, reminded of this in the last few weeks. Uh, some of you may have followed the case of a, a Christian university in the East, and the Supreme Court made a decision which revoked their tax exemption uh, for uh, what they felt was a racist stand that the university took. The university, in their case, felt this was based on uh, their interpretation of Scripture. But at any rate, the thing that struck me was the way in which the president of this university responded when the decision of the Supreme Court went against him. Immediately became very bitter and hostile and angry and began uh, using very strong words describing the members of the Supreme Court as heathen and godless pagans and so forth. And the thing that struck me is that that's the way the average non-Christian responds when the Supreme Court makes a decision that he doesn't like. And the watching world would say, in seeing that, you know, there's really no difference when it gets down to the rubber meeting the road in life. There's no difference between them and us. That gospel is, is just so many words. So this is what will begin, then, to give us uh, an impact on people around us when they see that we do not grumble and complain in the same circumstances that cause others to be, be hostile and resentful and, and to gossip and slander. When they see this quality of a healed life begin to manifest itself in the midst of very pressing circumstances, they'll begin to sit up and take notice. Now Luke continues in verses 11 to 16 to record for us Paul's uh, final journey to Rome. At the end of three months, he says in verse 11, we set sail on an Alexandrian ship which had wintered at the island and which had the twin brothers for its figurehead. And after we put in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. From there we sailed around and arrived at Regium. And a day later a south wind sprang up, and on the second day we came to Puteoli. There we found some brethren and were invited to stay with them for seven days, and thus we came to Rome. And the brethren, when they heard about us, came from there as far as the market of Appius and three inns to meet us. And when Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. And when we had entered Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who was guarding him. I've always felt a little sorry for this uh, soldier be handcuffed to Paul, captive audience. Luke tells us that they spent three months at the island of Malta, waited out the severe winter months of November and December and January, and then in early February, the uh, seas had calmed down enough that they could uh, set sail again. And so in early February, they made their way north from uh, Malta to the port of Syracuse, which was the main port on the island of Sicily. And then they tacked against a northwest wind up to uh, 
uh, Regium, which was in the toe of uh, Italy, and they waited for a south wind to take them up the Straits of Messina to the seaport town of Puteoli. This was the seaport town for southern Italy. Most of the goods that eventually made their way to Rome came to this harbor town in the Bay of Naples there because the sea to the north of the Bay of Naples was uh, rougher. The currents were fairly complex. And so most of the goods, including the wheat ships, would unload right here at Puteoli. Luke tells us there was a church that had already been planted in this little town, and Paul spent a week with these believers there. And they left Puteoli and made their way by the uh, Appian Way up to the city of Rome. The Appian Way was a highway that the Romans had built in about 300 B.C., uh, one of the real architectural wonders of the world, really, because there are stretches of that road which are intact today. And if you wish, you can go to Italy and walk the same steps that Paul would have walked on his way to Rome. Sort of makes me wish these guys had built the street out in front of my house instead of the one that I've got. But they made their way on the Appian Way up to the uh, city of Rome. I was struck yesterday, by the way, I was going shopping with my wife and in uh, the supermarket I found a pizza mix called Appian Way Pizza Mix. So it's uh, the name is still with us today. But at any rate, some of the uh, believers in Rome had heard that Paul was on his way to see them, and they remembered very well that three years earlier Paul had written the epistle to the Romans to them and were so anxious to meet him that they actually left the city of Rome and came all the way down to the market of Appius, which was a 43-mile journey from Rome, and also the little market town of Three Inns, which is about 33 miles south of Rome, and then they accompanied Paul into the city itself. Luke tells us this greatly encouraged Paul. It had always been his heartbeat to preach the gospel in, in Rome, the very center of the Roman Empire, and to receive this sort of encouraging greeting from the, uh, the brothers and sisters there lifted his spirits. When Paul reached Rome, he was probably handed over to the prefect of the Praetorian Guard there in Rome, and he was allowed to rent his own apartment for the two years of his confinement there, the only stipulation being that he had to remain handcuffed to a member of the Praetorian Guard for the entire time. So these members of the Praetorian Guard probably changed shifts every eight hours. A new one would uh, knock on the door of Paul's apartment, and they would unlock the handcuffs and chain up the new guy. And so Paul had another eight hours with a member of the Praetorian Guard. The way that Ray Stedman puts it is that Nero had no idea that he was the chairman of evangelism uh, for the Roman Empire. Because over the course of these two years, Paul had an opportunity to share the gospel with many of the members of this Praetorian Guard. And he tells us in the book of Philippians that the gospel had spread throughout the entire barracks, the entire military barracks there, of Caesar's hand-picked uh, soldiers and bodyguards. Now, the second uh, key element to uh, an impact on our society, I believe, is found in verses 17 to 23. It happened that after three days he called together those who were the leading men of the Jews, and when they had come together, he began saying to them, Brethren, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, Yet I was delivered prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. And when they had examined me, they were willing to release me because there was no ground for putting me to death. But when the Jews objected, I was forced to appeal to Caesar, not that I had any accusation against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I requested to see you and to speak with you, for I am wearing this chain for the sake of the hope of Israel." 
And they said to him, We have neither received letters from Judea concerning you, nor have any of the brethren come here and reported or spoken anything bad about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for concerning this sect it is known to us that it is spoken against everywhere. And when they had set a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers, and he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets from morning until evening. It was Paul's custom, as always, to begin with the Jews... Because of his imprisonment, he could not go to the Jewish synagogues in Rome. So he called the leaders of the Jewish synagogues in the city of Rome to meet with him. And they graciously responded because of Paul's past history as a member of the Sanhedrin and as a rabbi. And Paul tells them that uh, he is on trial for what he calls the hope of Israel. And these men, these leading men of the synagogue, would understand immediately that what Paul was referring to was the messianic hope that every Jew held deep in his heart. That one day God would send his Messiah to the Jewish people who would be a savior and a deliverer of the Jewish nation. And Paul told these men, I have news about this messianic hope. So they set a day, and uh, when this day came for them to meet together a second time, Luke tells us that large numbers showed up, that evidently not only the leaders of the Jewish synagogues, but many other Jews wanted to come and hear this word from Paul. And so they all crowded into his tiny little rented apartment there. And Luke tells us that from morning until evening, Paul had an opportunity from the scriptures to share with them the good news about Jesus Christ, solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and about Jesus. Imagine that must have been... uh, uh, Quite, a, quite an experience. I would have loved to just been an eyewitness to that to see as Paul opened the scriptures to these men and reasoned with them from morning until evening from the scriptures about the identity of Jesus Christ. And this suggests to me that this is the second element, not only to demonstrate the, the healing power of Christ in our lives, but secondly, to accompany that changed life with a bold proclamation of the gospel. And just as Paul did here, I think it's appropriate for us to take the initiative on occasion in sharing the gospel with those around us. As we develop friendships with people that we work with and in our neighborhoods, I think it's appropriate to do just what Paul did, to take the initiative to invite them out for lunch, to invite them over for coffee, to invite them over for dinner, to have an opportunity in an informal and uh, uh, unrushed atmosphere to share with them the good news and the hope that we have found in Jesus. And I think it's appropriate, too, as Paul did, to, as Paul opened the scriptures to these people, to uh, bring our friends into some uh, format where they can be exposed to the teaching of the scriptures. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 14 that it's the prophetic word of God that we have in the scriptures today. It's the prophetic word of God that awakens the heart of the non-believer. So it's appropriate to invite them to the men's study uh, on Wednesday mornings, to invite them to your growth group where the scriptures are discussed and applied to life, to invite them if they're willing to come with you on a Sunday morning to hear the scriptures open and scriptures taught. I think we need not to hesitate to be bold in taking this sort of initiative and declaring to others the hope that we have found in Jesus. 
Now, the third key is found in verses 24 through 28. And the third key to this sort of impact on our society is a responsive heart. Some were being persuaded, in verse 24, by the things spoken, but others would not believe. And when they did not agree with one another, they began leaving, after Paul had spoken one parting word, the Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your fathers, saying, Go to this people and say, You will keep on hearing, but will not understand, and you will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, and with their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn again, and I should heal them. Let it be known to you, therefore, that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will also listen. There are always these two responses to the gospel. Some respond, some believe, others refuse to believe. This is the sort of impact that Paul described in 2 Corinthians 2 when he said that we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are perishing and among those who are being saved, to the one an aroma from death to death, and to the other an aroma from life to life. As we demonstrate the healing power of God in life and boldly proclaim the truth of the gospel to these people, we will encounter one of two responses. Either people will believe the gospel and respond to it and give their hearts to Jesus, or they will reject it, they will resist it, they will refuse it. Now that happened in the case of many of these leading Jews in Rome, and Paul quoted a passage from Isaiah to explain their lack of response to the gospel. And this is very helpful to us because I think it puzzles us at times that, that people do not uh, see the truth of the gospel. It seems so obvious and clear to us that uh, the power of Jesus in life is what people need, his forgiveness and his strength for living. And we will share this with people who are, who are hurting and are desperate. And it will surprise us that they just can't seem to uh, acknowledge or accept the significance of the message that we have to proclaim to them. Now he suggests that there are people who will see but not perceive. In other words, there will be some kind of visual perception, but there will be no comprehension, no perception gain. And they will hear, but there will be no understanding communicated in that hearing. Reminded of this this last week, I uh, was in the in the bedroom and I was looking for a dress shirt and I called to my wife and I said, "Debbie, where is my white dress shirt?" She said, "It's right there in the closet." And I said, "I just looked in the closet; it's not there." She says, "No, it's right there in the closet." I said, "No, Debbie, I just looked and it's not there." So she came in from the kitchen and sure enough, she found that dress shirt right where I had just been looking. Just unbelievable. <laughs> but. Uh, but Paul says some people are like that with the gospel. The gospel can be presented to them clearly, persuasively, and yet there's simply no, it just simply doesn't register. There's no perception. And likewise, he says people will hear, but it simply doesn't register. There's no comprehension that takes place. Kelly Kitchens was telling me that his uh, father has a hearing problem. He, uh, he cannot uh, 
hear low tones. He has good uh, hearing acuity for high tones, but can't pick up any low tones at all. And he was attending a party with a friend of his who had exactly the opposite hearing problem. He could hear low tones very well, but couldn't pick up any high-pitched tones. And this party took place in the spring, and the windows of this building were open, and the frogs and the crickets were busy outside. And uh, Kelly's dad and his friend were talking, and Kelly's dad says, uh, Man, those uh, crickets are driving me nuts. And his friend said, What crickets? It's the frogs that are driving me nuts. <laughs> and uh, Kelly's dad said, What frogs? Uh, but Paul says it's the same way with people in the hearing of the gospel, that there's the, the, the message is communicated, but there's simply no response to it. We're simply not communicating it on a wavelength, that they're a frequency that they're tuned into. Now, Paul tells us why this is true, why this communication can take place and there can be no, no response to what obviously is their, is their need in life. <clears throat> now, what Paul says is these people, the reason they see but do not perceive is that they have closed their eyes and they have closed their ears to the gospel. That the problem is not that our presentation of the gospel is faulty. It's not that we need more evangelism training classes. Now, it's, it's not that we uh, have the personality of a dial tone or something like that, and people simply don't respond to us. But Paul says it's because people have closed their eyes and closed their ears to the gospel. And that's why they don't respond. We often take it personally when people reject the, our presentation of the gospel. But Paul's explanation is that they have deliberately closed their eyes to the truth. And the reason he goes on to explain is late in verse 27, lest they should see with their ears, see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn again. The word turn that Isaiah used first and Paul repeats here was the term that the prophets used for repentance. And it meant to turn around or to turn back, to have a change of mind and a change in course of behavior. And that's why people will refuse to respond to the gospel. They realize that the cost, instinctively often, subconsciously, they realize that the cost of responding to the gospel is more than they are willing to pay. It challenges their self-sufficiency, their uh, self-centeredness, their self-reliance, and it threatens them. And they'd rather simply not consider a message that threatens them in that way. Now that suggests to me quite clearly that the basic problem in people responding to the gospel is not an intellectual one, but a moral one. The reason people do not respond to the gospel is not primarily because they cannot believe in a God who would allow innocent people to suffer, or they simply cannot believe the early chapters of Genesis and what they teach about creation rather than evolution, or they have trouble buying the historical validity of the resurrection. That uh, These, in general, I wouldn't say all the time, but most of the time are simply intellectual smokescreens that people use to dodge facing the moral issue that the gospel presents. Am I going to serve myself or am I going to serve Jesus as the Lord of my life? So this suggests to me that there is a limited value in evangelism in the use of apologetics. I think when people raise these objections to us and we don't feel we have all our arguments on creation and evolution under control or we cannot provide a satisfactory explanation of the problem of suffering in the world, 
that somehow our evangelism then is going to be useless or ineffective. I think what we need to do is to keep bringing the issue back and sharing the truth with people persistently and yet lovingly to the moral issue that Jesus uh, offers salvation, uh, forgiveness, and power, but at the cost of serving him as Lord. And that's the basic decision that people uh, do not want to make because of the threat that it poses to them. Uh, The end of this passage in Isaiah says that God is waiting to heal them. He longs to heal them, but many people are like a sick man who refuses to visit a physician. And as long as he refuses to pay a visit to the doctor, the doctor can do him no good. Well, are we left uh, sort of hopeless when we encounter that sort of response from people? Well, I don't think so. Paul doesn't make any further reference to it here, but often what it takes to awaken people, awaken their responsiveness to the gospel, is when the, the... Slats are just knocked out from under them when the props are just kicked out and uh, they just run up against a dead-end street. That's when they begin to pay attention to the message of the gospel and not until. The word that Paul uses for dull in verse 27, the hearts of this people have become dull, is a word that literally means to make fat or to, to well-nourish. And it speaks of someone who is uh, prosperous and content And because they are well-fed, they are sluggish and unresponsive. And it's often true that as long as people uh, have comfortable circumstances, everything seems to be going smoothly for them, there's no need to respond to the gospel, and they won't. But when things begin to turn sour, it's at that point that the words that we have shared with them in love can begin to make sense to them and begin to register. I was struck this week in watching the uh, news program 2020 that... uh, John DeLorean and his wife are openly professing now to uh, have acknowledged Jesus as Lord of their lives and have begun to depend upon him for the strength that they need for these very difficult days ahead. There's a a prime example of that, of a couple who just had absolutely everything. One of Detroit's uh, golden boys, one of the the real newsmakers in the uh, world of business internationally. And it wasn't until the the props were knocked right up from under him that he and his wife began to sense their need for the presence of God in life. So that's our hope, that people at some point, when they're up against it, will remember the words that we have shared with them, remember the healing power that we have demonstrated in our own lives, and the gospel will then begin to make sense. Luke closes his account in verses 30 and 31. It says, Paul stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. The word unhindered there in verse 31 is a legal term, meaning that Paul encountered no legal resistance to his sharing of the gospel in these last two years probably took two years to uh, regather the legal papers that had been lost in the shipwreck and a couple of years for the Jews in Jerusalem to come to Rome to press charges and some time to find a spot on Nero's busy calendar to hear this appeal. And so while Paul was there in his uh, rented quarters, he was able to receive guests and spent those two years openly proclaiming the gospel of Christ to all that uh, came to visit. We're probably fortunate that he was slowed down a little bit. The books of Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians and Philemon were all written during this two-year period of Paul's imprisonment. Now, it's fitting in a way that the gospel ends with this sort of unfinished note that many people have observed. 
I think the reason it's fitting is that uh, the Gospel of Acts, the concluding chapters of the Gospel of Acts, are still being written today. The story is not finished. Luke says in Acts 1.1 that this, his first account, the Gospel of Luke, was a record of all that Jesus began to do and teach. And it's clear that the book of Acts then is his record of what Jesus continued to do and to teach through his apostles. And that chapter is still going on today. That story is still being written as uh, Jesus, again, living in us, is doing and teaching the gospel. I think that's the hope for us, that as we continue to demonstrate uh, healed lives before a hurting world, continue to boldly proclaim the gospel, that we can trust God to awaken responsive hearts and add uh, more to the unwritten finish of the, the book of Acts. Would you stand with me and we'll close in prayer. Lord, we ask you this morning to release your healing power in our lives. Give us a release from the spiritual maladies that plague us. Pray that you will continue your gradual process of making us whole and complete and well-adjusted people. Pray that you will encourage us with a boldness to communicate to others the good news of the gospel. And we trust you to awaken responsive hearts to the truth so that their eyes can see and their ears can hear the liberating message of the gospel. We pray that you will enable us as a people to make a significant impact on our community. We pray that the city of Boise, spiritually, would not be the same again because of our presence in its midst. Pray that you'll use us as lights in a dark place in this community. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.